millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A. FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Hello and welcome to the Back Half, the New Statesman's new culture podcast. Normally what happens now is that Kate Mossman and I have a witty and insightful exchange about whatever music, television or cultural happenings are on our radar. But this week, Kate is in a bunker somewhere, writing a top secret long feature, which hopefully we'll be able to talk about next week. So instead, I've got something completely different for you. And it is, in its own way, a treat for your ears and your brain. It's the voice of the wonderful novelist and short story writer Ali Smith, delivering the New Statesman Goldsmiths Prize lecture, which we've printed this week in the magazine. Her subject is Why the Novel Matters in the Age of Brexit and Trump. And it's a glorious, pinballing, mind-expanding talk that takes in everything from Muriel Sparks' satire of Watergate with nuns, Robert Burns's pub graffiti, and a comparison of the prose of Trump and Gertrude Stein. I introduced Ali Smith on the night, so I now have the slightly odd job of introducing myself, and here I am. Um, good evening, I'm Tom Gatti, I'm culture editor of the New Statesman. I'm pleased to say that the NS and Goldsmiths have enjoyed a fruitful, long-running and monogamous relationship. We don't see other prizes, they don't see other magazines. Since we co-founded the prize in 2013, the idea was to reward British and Irish authors taking creative risks with the novel form. And in just four years, the prize has not only launched new literary stars, but changed the whole conversation around what we look for in the novel. To continue that conversation, we launched the annual New Statesman Goldsmiths Prize Lecture, and we're thrilled that this year's lecture will be given by Ali Smith. A winner of the prize and a champion of its mission, Ali Smith has, over the course of some 17 books, become one of our finest storytellers, marrying playful postmodernism and constant formal innovation with a genius for voice and a keen sense of humanity. In autumn, the first volume of her seasonal cycle, the second of which will be published next month, she explored the profound divisions of Brexit Britain. It was a reminder that her work has always been political but in the best sense of the word, never blunt or hectoring, always buoyed by the dizzying possibilities of language. Later this evening, we'll have the announcement of this year's Goldsmiths Prize shortlist. But now, please welcome Ali Smith. 
Thank you, Tom, for that lovely introduction. Okay, we were in a taxi coming here, and the taxi driver told us the story behind half a pound of tuppenny rice. Does anyone else know it? Anyone, yeah, Pop Goes the Weasel. Yeah. So, half a pound of treacle, that's the way the man he goes. Pop Goes the Weasel. Pop Goes the Weasel means? <laughs> I thought you knew. Um, it's, the, it's apparently it's what, you, what you do when you take your hat off. Pop goes the weasel, off goes the hat, off goes your posh hat, and then it's in, uh, up and down the city road, in and out of the eagle pub. That's the way the money goes, pop goes the, the weasel. And then the weasel, when you take your, you take your hat off, you take it to the, um, uh, the, pawn, the pawn shop and you pawn it, and then you can spend the money, pop goes the weasel, that's what it's about. I have to find it up in your I didn't know. Okay, now novel matters, okay. Um, the novel matters because it doesn't matter. And simultaneously, because it does, nobody is ever going to say it better than Jane Austen, the first real revolutionary of the form, who recognised what the novelists had done before her and were doing with this new young force historian. It's Austen who took what Stern and Fielding and Richardson and Defoe and Bernie and Edsworth and all the brand new genre writers were doing, and she rolled it and them all together and rolled it forward. Austen, the woman on the money, <laughs> at last. The writer who Andrea Leadsom, a contemporary MP in the governing party in this country, though more a member of the actual government of this country, recently declared as one of our greatest living novelists. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Austin, who defined the novel in Northanger Abbey, a novel that understands the postmodern 150 years before the term postmodern even came into existence. Austin, who knew how little and how much the novel matters both at once. Oh, it is only a novel, only some work in which the greatest powers of the mind are displayed, in which the most thorough knowledge of human nature, the happiest delineation of its varieties, the liveliest effusions of wit and humour are conveyed to the world in the best chosen language. The novel matters. I know it does, but how to talk about it and for like 40 minutes, 45 minutes, go and read a bit of novel instead. <laughs> how can a circus juggler of dinner plates, five or six or seven dinner plates in the air, wheeling round over the head in an intricate, dangerously blunt, inarticulable, always shifting, always rising, always falling, hopeless, dangerous, hefty, yet fragile rhythm, dare to stop in the middle and tell you about ceramics? And why dinner plates? <laughs> What a middle-class juggler, what a middle-class novel, it's disappointing. Why not giraffes or juggernauts or flicking through the dictionary at random, contra-tenors or entrecotes or anconus or nuclei or plurals or Shetland rule or all the possible variants of all the possible everything because the novel can go everything, be about all of it. And at its best is, of course, always much more than what it's ostensibly about. And the novel is much more than I know, so I don't want to define it. In fact, I'll go out of my way all my life if I can, including tonight, not to define it. I've written nine novels, or seven or five, depending on how several of the things I've done have got defined out there in the land of definition. And I've written three of them in the last four years. And each time, the form is even more of a mystery to me because the writing of a novel is done in a darkness that involves being willingly blindfolded, then set down God knows where, to feel your way around something that feels like it might be a massive slab of stone set in the floor in the middle of a cave so dark that when you take the blindfold off it makes no difference. A cave set deep into a landscape, God knows where, or you thought you did, but you don't, and trying to sense with your hands the shape of it, the shape you're there to make of the stone, a shape that's as yet unfound, still inside the mass of it. So what follows tonight instead is nothing more than a series of matches struck in the shining sun in broad daylight on Brighton Pier. 
a sideshow, something pretending to tell your fortune, a bit of fun. As close to the real thing as me saying to you, here, put your head in this cut-out shape and I'll take your photo with your head on the body of a mermaid and tell you it's more you than any that you've otherwise seen. <coughs> here goes the novel, being much more than I know, which is one of the reasons I love it, the novel. It means it's hard to think you know a form, know it well enough to hold forth about it and then having told it what it is, to deign to ask it when you sit down to begin the matter of another novel, to be new again. To be itself, be alive, do its own thing, be more than we know. But for sure, it's a form which takes time, gives us time, renews old matter, reminds you what life is and how layered and dimensional it and language and thought and being are, allows understanding, allows fellow feeling, analyses the notion of structure while being a structure of its own, demonstrates transformation, is micro and macro, by which I mean works on us synaptically and symphonically. And as a form, at the vanguard of its own form, never stops finding the form to meet the needs of the time in which it is written, and therefore the needs of all our time cycles, the ones we're here on earth for, the ones that went before, the ones still to come, all from the pivot point of the present moment, the no time and the always that each novel engages us in and holds us through. Okay? <laughs> the novel matters because Donald Trump... <laughs> I don't think I need to add another verb to that, and I think I'll just leave that statement to be as Gertrude Stanish as it is, if only to nod to in an amazed way, as if the world were itself a novel and full of unexpected twists and turns, the many online sites which now compare the stylistic choices and innovations of one of America's foremost radical modernists to President Trump's own device of barbaric yawp, with pages of comparison paragraphs and headings like, who said this, Donald Trump or Gertrude Stein, and underneath examples like... I mean, I have it even today, and I have many women at high positions. I, you know, I've gotten a lot of credit for that. I mean, I have so many women working for me and so many women in high positions working for me, and I've gotten great credit for it. <laughs> and everything is the same except composition, and as the composition is different and always going to be different, everything is not the same. Everything is not the same as the time when of the composition and the time when the composition is different. The composition is different, that is certain. The composition is the thing seen by everyone living in the living that they are doing. They are the composing of the composition that at the time they are living is the composition of the time in which they are living. Poor old Stein. Her reputation these days darkened by the eye of Aftermath, which is calling her out online right now for being a Nazi appeaser since a mix of the words rich American Jewish lesbian France Nazi invasion and early 1940s managed not to end up fraternizing with the word interned. Never mind their unrated art collection, but where Trump's language will always reveal his true interests here, credit, women, the repeated coupling of the word I and the word have, and a highlighted interest in the coupling of the words woman and position, and who gets to decide about both, Stein, a woman of high position herself, is revealed as interested in how composition and time and living are related to difference and sameness. And she also knows that language will constantly tell us everything we need to know about not just its speaker, but its time, and living in its time. But where Stein wrote a novel called The Making of Americans, Trump has added a word, sad. And just as much as time of Trump, this time of Trump will have its effect on language. Language will reveal the workings of the era of Trump. A whole new layer added to the meaning of the word sad. And on a complex international level too, level two, not forgetting its exclamation mark. Language renews itself constantly. Sad means something else now. It's what language naturally does. Stein was a conscious renewer. Ian Forster says in aspects of the novel that Stein is one of the novelists who, knowing that the form itself is clock-bound, has been since Stern, always about time, always itself a kind of pendulum, one way or another, about the tick, tick, tick. Stein went out of her way because of this to smash the clock, pulverise it, to try to escape time. Well, you can't. 
And although Stein is talking specifically about the writing of poetry, not novels, in 1935, and what I'm just about to quote to you, because I'm about to quote what she said when a student at the University of Chicago put up a hand in a seminar and asked her what on earth her famous line from one of her poems, the line that goes, rose is a rose, is a rose, is a rose, actually means. I think it's worth quoting when it comes to the novel, because of the novel being called novel, because it's about language and newness and the notions of newness, and that's, as far as I'm concerned, always at the heart of the notion of why the novel matters. This is Gertrude Stein. Now listen, can't you see that when the language was new, as it was with Chaucer and Homer, the poet could use the name of a thing and the thing was really there. He could say, O oh moon, O oh sea, O oh love, and the moon and the sea and love were really there. And can't you see that after hundreds of years had gone by and thousands of poems had been written, he could call on those words and find that they were just worn out literary words. The excitingness of pure being had withdrawn from them. They were just rather stale literary words. Now the poet has to work in the excitingness of pure being. He has to get back that intensity into the language. We all know that it's hard to write poetry in a late age and we know that you have to put some strangeness or something unexpected into the structure of the sentence in order to bring back vitality to the noun. Now, it's not enough to be bizarre. The strangeness in the sentence structure has to come from the poetic gift too. That's why it's doubly hard to be a poet in a late age. Now, you all have seen hundreds of poems about roses, and you know in your bones that the rose is not there. All those songs that sopranos sing his encores about, I have a garden, <coughs> oh, what a garden. Now, I don't want to put too much emphasis on that line because it's just one line in a longer poem, but I notice that you all know it. You make fun of it, but you know it. Now, listen, I'm no fool. I know that in daily life we don't go around saying dot, 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 is a, dot, 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 is a, dot, dot, dot. Yeah, I'm no fool. But I think that in that line, the rose is red for the first time in English poetry for a hundred years. The novel matters because all the arts are family, related, and I tend to think at their best when they meet up with or cross over into each other. Among them, the novel is particularly versatile at this crossing over in that it can boil and chameleon and meet the other forms with immensely fruitful outcome. Where it crosses into the poem and the short story, where it borrows from these forms essentiality, concentration and tight edit, borrows the short story's indebtedness to our own mortality, our own briefness, plus short story's ability to stretch form, to be spatially elastic. And where it borrows the poem's deep-rooted ancientness of both voice and form, borrows from both their way of allowing emphasis to work in resonance, like rings in water, as part of the shift of what we call plot, the novel blossoms into intensity. Where its structural possibility learns from the sculptural arts, where something extra-dimensional happens to the form. Say you decide, like Henry James or George Perec, to cut a Barbara Hepworth-like hole into your novel, either by leaving something unsaid, like James so often does, <laughs> as if removed from the story, leaving readers with a hole at the centre of their reading. That unsaid thing that pierces the work will also pierce the reader. Or like Perec, if like Perec, he literally cut out something physical like he does in Sailor Disparation, in which a man called Monsieur Vowel disappears. And so does one of the five vowels, the E, leaving many words unable to be used, written down, spoken by the voice of the novel, which in turn opens a window on the absences in history, causing the haunting of the novel and its reader at every level by things gone, removed, unseen, unsaid, unsayable. And because the novel is like the language that goes to make it naturally rhythmic, it can sing anything and everything, from the three minutes of happiness pop song 
to the opera cycle or both at once. And because every story tells a picture, and every word paints a thousand of them, and because the novel's footwork is choreography with its partner in the dance, the reader is why and how it moves us, there are other novels like Angela Carter said of The Great Gatsby that we lie back and have done to us. <laughs> and there are the novels that we ask us rather to do a lot or even just a little of the footwork too. Everyone in this room will know about the picking up of a novel, hitting its first pages as if hitting a brick wall. But once you've committed, that's you climbing over or knocking a door or a window through that wall and soon you are waltzing through any wall you like. And so on. The novel matters because... and so on. By which I mean that I've come to believe that all the arts are about time, but that the novel in particular is about the and so on of things, continuance and continuity, the continuum. It's a form too very interested in the workings of society, so it tells us always about how we're living, who we're living with, and where we are in the endless social structural cycle that eventually gets called history. But where the short story is a form whose briefness suggests our own, whose sharpness signals what Catherine Mansfield short-lived herself, a writer who'd revolutionised the short form and was dead before she reached her mid-thirties, a form whose shortness then signals what she has one character in a story called At the Bay, which is all about keeping things at bay. Uh, In that story she has this character sitting, looking into the the evening dark, saying, am I wasting my life? The shortness of life, exclamation mark. The shortness of life, exclamation mark. Well, that's what the story does. The novel is a form is about time via the long view, the continuum, in a way that always suggests that even though the novel ends, time doesn't or won't. The novel keeps on ticking, even if you pulverise it like Stein, even if you bend it like Wolf or bend time in it like Amos. This makes it a comfort as a form, an ever-blooming thing, blooming out of itself. Novel is a novel is a novel is a novel, which makes me think of the great Norwegian poet Henrik Bergelandt, who died young. And one of the last things he said just before he died, he said, kiss next year's roses for me. Or it makes me think of Mansfield just before she died far too young on a freezing farm commune run by Russians who spoke practically no English, which meant she spent a long time trying to work out how to say, please, can I have some wood for my fire? Thinking of her writing in her last letter before she died in a freezing January. I'm looking for signs of spring already. In fact, the novel matters because Catherine Mansfield never got to write one, never had the chance. Not that she didn't think about it, unlike the great... American short story writer Grace Paley, who chose only to work in the short story form because she said, art is too long and life is too short. (laughs) But the novel, even a short novel, is always long. And the short story, even a long short story, will always be short. And the novel, as well as a creature of time, and a creature which gives us time, is a creature of its time. I'm not so sure there's really such a thing as the historical novel or the futurist novel. I think a novel always reflects its time, the time it's written in, it can't not. Futurist novels like Huxley's Brave New World, like Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale, Oryx and Drake, Orwell's 1984-1948, of course they're about their own time. Atwood, for instance, typically repeats that she never uses and has never used anything in her futurist works that doesn't already exist, isn't already happening somewhere in the real world. If they're about the times after them, it's because it was ever thus. The ebbs and flows and circles of time bring us back to the same questions over and over, just as in just in new ways. And actually, it's one of the novel's tasks. Actually, it's the task of all the arts to read the new ways the old cycles seem to be taking, but also to keep matter new to us, because whatever the story the novel is telling, it'll always be a piece of literal time fabric, literal time texture and textile. If it holds true regardless of when it's being read, it'll be a work that knows that the past and the future are umbilical to each other. The history repeats itself and will repeat on us as soon as we think we've swallowed it, digested it, believed for a minute that it's over and gone. 
And this is another reason that the novel really matters. The novel matters because it makes matter and matters new to us every time. It makes things matter anew. Chambers Dictionary says the word novel comes through old French and Italian to us from Latin novellus, feminine novella, from novus, meaning new, the new, the new thing. Here are some dictionary definitions for the word we use, the form we call novel, new and strange, of a new kind, felt to be new. And then the definition for the noun, novel, a fictitious prose narrative or tale presenting a picture of real life, especially of the emotional crises in the life history of the men and women portrayed. Okay, got that? Fictitious but real. Emotional, life, history, men, women, felt to be new. With the word the added, the novel, it means a literary genre or a Roman emperor's new constitution or decree. As a noun, it also used to mean a piece of news, but that's obsolete now, like yesterday's newspaper used to be, or like the news stories of roughly half an hour ago are now. Then the dictionary lists the colourful words, I love these words, noveldom, novelese, novelette, novelettist, novelism, and finally, novelish, also like novelish, and finally novelist, the meaning of which word it gives as a novel writer, an innovator, obsolete. (laughs) (laughs) and a newsmonger or newswriter also obsolete an innovator obsolete I love it that paradox, that glorious oxymoron of a meaning sums up without even knowing it's doing it the way in which a novel is one of the forms that can hold a person's opposites together I love the polar opposite, the impossibility both words vying to cancel the other out yet still completely connected at the hip making the single word novelist because the novel as a form is that versatile that all embracing it is immediately new and old, traditional and revolutionary, because the novel travels forward on the backs of all the novels that have gone before it, made by them to be part of the form and freed by them to be its new self. And I love that the novel, born originally of the newness of things, which is why it was called the novel, because of novelty, before novelty came to mean something trivial. I love that it's a statement and it's very signifier of its own newness, its contemporary status, and it's always up against at the same time, that inbuilt obsolescence, as soon as it's written, deepen the contemporary definition. And the word matter. Matter, according to the dictionary, is that which occupies space and with which we become acquainted by our bodily senses. That out of which anything is made, material. Substance as distinct from form, which is a philosophical shade of meaning, the dictionary tells me, and makes me want to yell novelishly, or maybe novelistishly, that substance is never distinct from form. Good sense is what Shakespeare apparently used the word matter to mean. It also means anything engaging the attention. Whatever has physical existence is distinct from mind. That's philosophical again. A thing of consequence. That with which a court is concerned, something to be tried or proved. And if you add the word no to the word matter, then interestingly, matter becomes something of importance, significance or consequence. No matter. See? Medically, matter also means pass. Verb-wise, it means to matter, to be of importance or significance or to form and discharge pus. Which brings me one way or another to D.H. Lawrence's essay, <laughs> written in 1936, called Why the Novel Matters. In it, he is, as usual, a surfer somewhere on the arc between delightful and infuriating, which maddening seesaw is part of the life that always is in the reading of him. And it's an essay which holds together its own self-cancelling polar opposites. One of my favourites of his impossible statements. This is the state of the state. He says, we should 
ask for no absolutes or absolute, once and for all and forever. <laughs> Let us have done with the ugly imperialism of any absolute. <laughs> Absolutely. His own personal manifesto of why the novel matters concerns its ability to interconnect, to produce in its reader a whole-bodied understanding. He dismisses the philosophers, the priests and the scientists, the mind-body-spirit-body splits, and he reintroduces at the core of things, and I'm reminded here of the Italian word for heart, cuore, from which we take the English word core. At the core of the novel, of the reading experience, is the body, undivided from mind and spirit. In the novel, he says, the characters can do nothing but live. If they keep on being good according to pattern, or bad according to pattern, or even volatile according to pattern, they cease to live, and the novel falls dead. A character in the novel has got to live, or it is nothing. We likewise in life have got to live, or we are nothing. In fact, he sees existence as dead or deadened if it is divided or split or forced to live as part of a pattern rather than part of a living, changing process. The novel matters to Lawrence because it reminds us to live, not to be dead to life and to spot the patterns or the stories in which the human state is left deadened. This essay, being written in 1936, is also full of war imagery, the old war, still an open wound, the new wars ratcheting up their new momentum. And he says, you never know what it will be next from killing your neighbour with hideous bombs and gas that tear the lungs, to supporting a foundling's home and preaching infinite love, and being a correspondent in a divorce, to be alive, he says, to be man alive, to be whole man alive. That is the point. And at its best, the novel and the novel supremely can help you. It can help you not be a dead man in life. So much of a man walks about dead in a carcass in the street and house today. So much of women is merely dead, like a pianoforte with half the notes mute. But in the novel, you can see plainly when the man goes dead, the woman goes inert. You can develop an instinct for life, if you will, instead of a theory of right and wrong, good and bad. Only in the novel are all things given full play, or at least they may be given full play when we realise that life itself and not inert safety is the reason for living. For out of the full play of all things emerges the only thing that is anything. I, I'm very drawn to his use of the word play in that last sentence. The full play of all things. The novel is an instrument of such playful possibility. The notion that we're each a music that should and can play fully. Well, I'm always interested in how the notion of the act of play and ludism will reveal pattern and let you either enjoy it or should pattern be stifling or deadening or controlling, you can use it to work against pattern. If I have a novelist-ish prayer for the novel, it borrows the words from Christine Brooke Rose, the patron saint of the 20th century experimental novel, let us play. I'm interested too to find I've been referring in this talk about the mattering of the novel to several texts written in the middle of the 1930s, the last time fascism was raising its head so notably locally and internationally across the world, the last time of Thanatos, of full-on division rolling itself towards catastrophe. Oh dear, what can the matter be? In a novel it can be anything and everything and we are lucky to have a form that will tell us, that won't be able not to tell us what the time of Trump, what the time of Brexit and our own national division are like but in a form which allows the time's articulation to be layered, complex, full of all our paradox and ambiguity as a human race, laced with the possibility of transformation because every story suggests another possible story and because above all, story is human. The novel matters because the contemporary state of the novel is related to the state of whatever is new to us in the contemporary. <coughs> Let me send you to Muriel Sparks' 1974 novel, The Abbess of Crewe, a satire on the Watergate scandal of the 1970s, written, published, and in the shops while Watergate was still on the front pages. In the Abyss of Crew, a power struggle breaks out at a convent of holier-than-thous between the nuns who want to run the place according to the conservative, traditional, but poetic, rather Palladian abbess, 
and a free love-loving 60s swinging sister, Sister Felicity. And this takes place in a heavily bugged building among a community whose holy litanies, read out at mealtimes, run as follows in the canteen. Not to gratify the desires of the flesh, to hate our own will and to obey the commands of the abbess and everything, remembering the Lord's <coughs> command, practice and observe what they tell you, but not what they do. Gospel of St. Matthew 23, and a split second later, systems of recording sound come in the form of variations of magnetisation along a continuous tape of or coated with or impregnated with ferromagnetic material. In recording, the tape is drawn at constant speed through the air gap of an electromagnet energised by the audio frequency current derived from a microphone key round the reading Deo Gratias. This novel, true to its time, prophetic about our own time, understands the surveillance techniques of centuries worth of religion. It laughs in the face of earthly powers and it morally contextualises and upends as it goes, while knowing that everything newsworthy and shocking is nothing but triviality when viewed metaphysically from beyond its real-life historic time slot. It is like being told and all the time knowing that the eyes of God are upon us. It means everything and therefore nothing. The Jesuits suspect no eavesdropping device more innocuous than God to be making a chronicle of their present privacy. Don't tell me the novel can't be contemporary. Oh, contempora, oh, mores. The abbess of crew will have been a mighty relief to anyone still sweet-hearted enough to be shocked by corruption in sacrosanct places. The novel understands the innocence, the hopefulness of our hearts and the corruption. Spark, the novelist, puts the human and the newsworthy in its ancient storied place here, part allegory, part myth, and in doing so, Freshens everything, frees us all from shock, outrage and false loyalties into a place where thinking is sacrosanct instead and understanding the motivation, power and power play of others or ourselves is too. And we're liberated from all the shocking revelations or the same old cliches of our times, whatever shape they take whenever we live. In other words, the people who make fictions can proffer other worlds which give us back the world. They can alert us to the people who make fictions of our worlds and call what they're doing truth. The novel teaches us how to read fictions, how to read structure, how to analyse the structures of the stories that we get told or we tell. So the novel matters because it is fiction and fiction profoundly matters to the human species. In the age of Trump, when truth is so blatantly revealed as something dismissible, something simply no longer relevant, the novel matters even more because to some extent we all live in fictions and by fictions. We've all long survived by using them, but in an age in which Living by fiction means having powerful fictions nationally, internationally and politically foisted upon us. Fiction lets us read and understand such fictions. But isn't fiction a lie, too? And if it isn't, what is it? And why do we have fiction anyway? Why do we love it and need it and use it all the time? What does fiction give us? What does the novel in particular give us? When my love swears that she is made of truth, I do believe her, though I know she lies. Shakespeare, on our ability to live multiply, simultaneously, Wittgenstein said lying is a language game. Psychiatrists and psychologists associate children's first lies with their initial claiming of autonomy. Joseph Brodsky puts it like this, the real history of consciousness starts with the first lie. The consciousness is in the double knowledge. A lie is not true. A fiction also knows it's not true. And the difference between a lie and a fiction is this. A lie goes out of its way to subvert truth. It's what a lie is for. That's its intention. A fiction has no such intention. If it intends anything to do with truth, it's to help us get to truth. Maybe truth that's difficult to articulate, and for which reason has had to take another shape. My mother sat bolt upright. I could only see her back, which was like a wall of pink silk. Sometimes a little light flickered into our room. The telephone kept purring next door. Down in the street, the man was whistling a tune. My mother trembled. Did you hear that? 
Did you hear that whistling? That was the hoarse whistle song that someone was whistling in the street here in Amsterdam. I don't know the song she means, but I wonder why it would make my mother so frightened and sad. I couldn't find her face anymore. It was so far away. Then in my mind I changed my mother into a tree because a tree is calm, a tree is unafraid, a tree doesn't get hungry or cry, it doesn't laugh and it doesn't talk. I turned her into a tree so that she would stop trembling. After that, I was able to sleep. That's from Irmgard Coyne, I-R-M-G-A-R-D-K-E-U-N, her 1938 novel, Child of All Nations, translated by Michael Hoffman. What can the novel do in the age of Trump, in an age of Nazis, in the age again of wounding and widening division and bordering? It can tell us where and how people are living. It can tell us what it means on the continuum if we choose to continue to live like that. It can give us an experience that's emotionally intelligent, a dimensionalising, inclusive experience. There's a book that came out in English back around the text I'm talking about in the 1930s towards totalitarianism and war. They were trembling towards us. The book was called The Yellow Spot. And it simply lists, early enough to make it clear to everyone who read it, what was happening and what would come of it. It lists as many of the injustices and brutalities happening to the Jewish people who lived in Germany as it could. It's a terrifying read. You can't read it. It's an understatement to say it's terrifying. Humankind cannot bear very much reality. Its litany is fact, and its list of facts, fact after fact, is, well, there isn't a word terrible enough for it. At roughly the same time, the German writer Irmgard Coyne was suing the Gestapo for loss of earnings when they burnt her books. As an anti-Nazi writer, her novels of the 1930s are stories of innocence up against foul, cruel power and rot in a way that reminds the people who read them of the root meaning of the word innocence. As Roland Barthes said, a doing of no harm. This dictatorship has made Germany a perfect country, she writes in another brilliant novel called In English After Midnight. And a perfect country doesn't need writers. There's no literature in paradise. We need the novel because paradise is a lie, a construct that doesn't exist, never has, and the novel never dictates to us, and never will. The novel matters because if one of us is exiled, we're all exiles, we're all migrants unhomed in the world, even those of us who've never ostensibly left home or had to, as soon as we hear that story. We are all exiles and we are all homesick, and the novel is one of our homes. Coyne's characters know that words really matter. In Child of All Nations, the main character, writer, father, is keeping them alive by the skin of what words he can still sell, what talks and lectures he can still give in a world that is banning him and ousting him country by country across Europe. The girl dreams of the importance of words spoken out loud. I imagine a lecture must be something like thunder made out of diamonds, she says. Pretty soon after Irmgard Coyne started writing these kinds of novels that the Nazis didn't want anybody to read and burnt, she was on the run herself from totalitarian paradise. And this is her description again from the novel After Midnight of the Immigrant Experience. You'll find any other country as smooth and hard as a chestnut shell. You become a trial to yourself and a burden to others. For the roofs that you see are not built for you. The bread that you smell is not baked for you. And the language you hear is not spoken for you. The novel matters. Because as Italo Calvino, a writer of transformatory forms, puts it, what counts is what we are and the way we deepen our relationship with the world and with others. A relationship that can be one of both love for all that exists and of desire too for its transformation. And the novel matters because as the painter Paul Cezanne, who thought of himself as a realist, liked to repeat, life is terrifying, life is terrifying. Let me send you towards an early novel by John Berger, 1958, called The Painter of Our Times, where Berger writes simply, those who have lived through some extreme suffering and danger see their lives whole. They've watched their own lives as you can 
What's a shooting star? It's impossible for them to live at the beck and call of vague generalisations. They know too well how much depends on particulars. The particular wrong answer. The particular bowl of soup. The strength of a particular pair of lungs. They know their own particulars in every sense. The novel is a very particular form. It likes particulars. It allows for and it contextualises our particularity. It sees in its metonymous way the epic in our each particular. I saw the great John Berger speak only once and it was I think the last time he spoke publicly in this country. A member of the audience asked him what he thought about the huge mass movement of people across the world right now and and that mass movement of displaced people is even bigger and under even more border and policing and political and environmentally catastrophic pressure today than it was two years ago when Berger was here speaking in London. Berger took a moment to think, and then he said as an answer, I have been thinking about the storyteller's responsibility to be hospitable. So come with me now back to the 1700s for a moment and to Robert Burns, who carried around with him a little diamond stylus, by which I mean a pen whose nib was diamond, with which he could and did write verses and dedications on things like the windows of the inns and pubs he drank in, or glass tumblers, or drinking glasses, like the verses he wrote of this impromptu song, which I'm not going to sing, written on a drinking glass to his friend Willie Stewart, which goes simply, you're welcome, Willie Stewart. You're welcome, Willie Stewart. There's ne'er a flower that blooms in May that's half so welcome as thou art. Come bumpers high, express your joy, the bowl we mon renew it. The tappet hen gang, bring her bend to welcome Willie Stewart. May foes be strong and friends be slack, ilk action may he rue it. May woman on him turn her back that rangs thee, Willie Stewart. You're welcome, Willie Stewart. You're welcome, Willie Stewart. There's ne'er a flower that blooms in May that's half so welcome as thou art. Quick translation, you're more than welcome, Willie Stewart. You're really, really welcome. You're very welcome. Welcome over and over again. There isn't a flower that blooms in May that's half as welcome as you are. Raise glasses, fill the bowls again, bring through the bottle with the crested lid, the one that's got three times more in it than an ordinary bottle, to welcome my friend. And may a strong foe and a weak friend be strong. Sorry that they're like they are and not stronger or weaker. And if anyone wrongs you, may women forever turn their back on them because you are welcome, Willie Stewart. Burns wrote this on a drinking glass for his friend. The landlady whose puppy was in was really annoyed. <laughs> she sold the glass to a gentleman for a shilling. Years later, the novelist Walter Scott at some point bought it, and I think it's still among the Abbotsford uh, collection at Scott's home. I'm not surprised Scott bought it. It appeals to a novelist, the words of welcome etched directly into the matter at hand. Scott couldn't collect, though, the window pane on which Burns wrote his verses for his friend Willie Stewart's daughter, Polly Stewart, because the Globe Tavern in Dumfries in Scotland still has its window in the same pane with a beautiful verse on it about how art can't stop flowers dying, but all the same, here's a giving of wealth, truth and eternal youth to you, Polly Stewart, and the hope of a lover who knows your worth. You're welcome, Polly Stewart. The act of hospitality etched into the view of anyone who ever glances out at the world through that piece of glass. The point of the stylus, the point where the word and the word, the word and the world come together in written style itself. The meeting of matter with matter. I'm nearly done. Now here comes Kamala Shamsi's astonishing new novel, Home Fire, smashing through the glass or plastic of any screen, speaking ancient and brand new truth to a world over-concerned with screens, fakery, paranoia, lies, and partisan tribalism. Home Fire is just out. It was out last week, and it's a novel that tells an old, old story. It is a new version of Sophocles' Antigone, and it uses the novel form mated with ancient tragedy to reveal how tragedy comes about, reveal the root of tragedy right now in the contemporary world, and a story about Islamic radicalisation and current British and American politics, which isn't to tell you in any way what the experience of this novel is like. A novel so gripping and so breathtaking in its calm and witty and unshowy and inexorable telling of its story as I was reading it, I kept finding myself not sitting on the sofa anymore reading the book, but somehow standing in the kitchen. 
wondering why on earth I'd gone through to the kitchen. What for? And realising it was that I had simply kept having to put the book I was reading down and leave the room. And as soon as I realised where I was and where I wasn't, I was like, what am I doing? And I was straight back to the grip of the book again. This novel, and the novel as a form, can shift our world. Even in the houses we stand in, the house that we think we know it can and it will cancel solipsism. Novels are communal, communally made and communally meant. Even though you might imagine there's just you and the novel in the room, the novel can and will dimensionalise it. It's a home with an open door, a peeled back roof. Its rooms are new. Here too, Shamsi taps into and fuses the formal continuum of the novel. A hopeful thing, the formal continuum of the novel, with the refusal to compromise that is in classical tragedy. If he fuses the hope with the hopelessness, the result is a very powerful thing. And in this making, contemporary, making of a new home for making new and communal all over again, the old, old story of the small girl who takes it upon herself to speak truth to power. She produces what I think you can truly call a contemporary classic. A classicist and novelist I met the other day and I had a conversation about this novel. She said she liked it all the way up to its last page. I don't think this is a spoiler, where, as she puts it, the characters lost their agency. I said, yeah, but it's a tragedy. She replied, it's beyond a tragedy. Well, yeah, it's a novel. In what Nabokov calls the prison of time, spherical and without exits. In other words, the clock face of time. The novel is a form that can do time differently. It can do the police in different voices. Jung wrote somewhere that he believed that culture was a kind of an ending mass communal unconscious. The novel form, whatever particular form each and every novel takes, is I think a kind of mass communal continuum. You might not know anything about the novel you're about to write before you write it, but the form itself knows a lot already. And whatever it's about, it'll tell you the communal consciousnesses, including the subs and the uns, and the state of the social and individual continuum, the current life of the communal. Think of the size and the range of a single human consciousness. It can hold everything from rose to moon to stars to o moon, o rose, o stars. It can hold the world, the universe and all the concepts. And if you believe you are a citizen of the imagination, you are a citizen of everywhere. Now, take that single human consciousness and multiply it by the word communal. That's the novel. It lit like each and every one of us who ever lived or are alive right now or are as yet unborn but coming. It matters because it simultaneously doesn't matter at all and also matters more than anything. I'm coming to the end now. This, this is a novel, thank God, so let me refer you finally to a poet, a sculptor and a musician. The poet Szeslo Milos, who says about language and its relationship with reality. The fabric of language has a constant propensity to come off from reality. And our efforts to glue them together are, in most cases, futile, yet absolutely necessary. The novel matters because the novel knows this. The gainsayers of naturalism in the novel know it too. Take Angela Carter, for example, who considered herself a realist, just like Cezanne, that man who astonished all Paris with his version of an apple. Because the core question asked by any novel that asks questions of form and structure is, as Virginia Woolf said, but what is reality? And who are the judges of reality? I can't help but think here of that great novelish sculptor, Barbara Hepworth's opened up concrete forms, pierced forms through which light shines, through which the world can be seen, forms which ask you to move round them, to see through them and to see differently from different perspectives. Remembering an early teacher and critic of her work, Hepworth said, he always said, I can give you the mathematical equation for that carving. And then he'd say, oh no, you've broken the equation, you've broken the rule. So I would say, where? He would point and I'd say, but that is the eye of the piece. 
And I can't help but think of reading Daniel Byronborn talking about the great novelish composer Ludwig van Beethoven being played under the Nazis or under any kind of totalitarian regime, he says, where left or right, suddenly assuming the call for freedom, even becoming a very direct criticism of the policies of the regime and therefore being actually a much more disturbing and at the same time uplifting thing. <coughs> or the great minimalist novelish artist and musician John Cage, who reckoned that to mess with the rules of syntax was to demilitarise the innate army in language. And the great novelist who never wrote a novel but perfected and said the short, instead the short story Catherine Mansfield, writing to the great novelist Virginia Woolf about what made falsity and what made truth in writing. What the writer does, she wrote, is not so much to solve the question put, but to put the question. There must be the question put. That seems to me a very nice dividing line between the true and the false writer. These are the novels I like best, if we're going to get individual, the ones which invite or demand that their reader take part in the making, be present in them, be creative in response to them, and in being part, be the opposite of excluded. Be active, be alive to them, and them, in turn, alive to the reader. But the novel, in all its forms, in all the shapes it takes, matters, because it can and will take all the shapes. The novel matters because it's a really good read. The novel matters because it does and it doesn't matter in a world where we do and don't matter. The novel matters because you're welcome. And the novel matters because of the very contemporary exclamation mark after the word sad. The novel matters because of all the things the words the and novel and matters and because can mean to us singly and in combination together and then because of the closeness and distance between the words word and world. And in turn, the closeness and distance the form of the novel can bring for us between word and world. Oh, it is only a novel. Only a novel. That's all. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. 
Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Have to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Thank you for listening to this special edition of The Back Half. We'll be back next week with a return to normal chat-based service. If you'd like to get in touch, please tweet me at at Tom underscore Gatti, G-A-T-T-I, or at NS underscore podcasts. As always, playing us out is a Japanese group who describe themselves as an instrumental band who expresses the energy of life with avant-garde music. It's Pistol Jazz. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.